Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, everyone on the East Coast, and good morning, everyone on the West Coast. I'm Patrick Martins, your host of the main course. We are broadcasting live out of Roberta's restaurant. I've always wanted to give the date, Joe, but I actually never remember it. Um, I thought it would always be more professional, but we are engineered in studio by Joe Galarraga. Joe. Hello. It is the 30th, by the way, June 30th, June 30th. 2013. Thank you. And uh, tell us about uh, your friend, the uh, student from CUNY, right? Oh, yeah, Latim is here. She was here uh, for two episodes ago as well. So wow. She's got real staying power. She's very disciplined. Yeah. She's like, I will not fall asleep this time. I will <laughs> not fall asleep. Well, Joe, you know, it's a frustrating reality. That even with all our technological prowess, most of us would be clueless without the help of even the most basic tools. For instance, like a Swiss Army knife, refrigerator, or a pack of matches. Never mind that for all our fantastic knowledge of computers and communication, if we were whisked back in time a century or two ago, what could you actually bring in the style of Prometheus to your new contemporaries? Joe, you'd be able to tell them about photography and recorded sound and the miracle of the radio and television, but not one in a million of us could actually build anything to demonstrate such magic, let alone invent any of the things and get rich based off of the know-how of our future selves. But Joe, ask yourself this. More importantly, could you build a shelter, hunt for food, fish? Could you build a fire to keep you warm and protect yourself from varmints? Control of fire, Joe, one of two primary ingredients in any meat dish, is one of those things that represents behavioral modernity. Cavemen were aces at it. And yet here we are, only marginally impressed that we've successfully sent a robot to Mars. But we'd be shit out of luck if we ended up like Tom Hanks in Castaway or one of the kids in Lord of the Flies. You can bet, Joe, that in the formative years of America, everyone learned at least one skill to help him or her survive. Kill and dress a deer, build a house, navigate by the stars, identify edible and poisonous plants, milk a cow, butter, build a fire. Uh, I think, you know, we should, uh, part of HRN is a call to celebrate the bounty of the earth and the power of nature before it was hijacked by the Industrial Revolution. Everyone, every person on the planet uses fire in some way every day, whether it's used to make tea or internally combusting inside the Crosstown bus. Fire is the prime mover in that thing called cooking. And it's just one more miracle we take for granted, Joe. And when the lights go off, they have before and they will again, the fire starter will be as king. 
Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, Sam Edwards is uh, in studio with us, uh, the Cure Master from S. Wallace Edwards and & Sons. And then we're going to have Aaron Burlington from Burr Eatery in California, Napa, California, call in. So stay tuned. And thank you to Whole Foods for sponsoring us. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. You're listening to This Body by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Well, here we are, back uh, after a, a, a vibrant, fascinating introduction. Uh, we are back with Sam Edwards, who is in town for the Fancy Food Show. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Patrick. Good to be back in New York. Oh, it's nice to, nice to have you. Nice to see you back. So uh, how long have you been doing the Fancy Food Show? How long has S. Wallace wow. Edwards and Sons been participating? This is our 30th year. 30th year. Right. Where was it? Just like a shanty town in the uh, '80s, or how's it <laughs> no, changed? No, actually, it was. It's always been pretty, uh, pretty big. I think the first year we went, it was at Javits, so it's always been there. It's, it's been a, a a big turnout. It's, I'm sure it's grown quite a bit since '83, but it's, it's always been a big show for us. '83. Wow, that is a long, long time. And. Um, has it always been in New York? I mean, I know these past three years, wasn't it in Washington, D.C.? Uh, two, last two years in D.C., but they used to move it from New York to Chicago to Atlanta uh, on the East Coast, and then they would do a West Coast. Still do do a West Coast show, but that used to rotate back and forth between San Francisco and San Diego, but they now stay in, in San Francisco. They now stay in San Francisco. So, um, And the show, I mean, what is the primary benefit? of the fancy food show to a company like yours? Well, well, exposure. You've got people, I think there's somewhere around twenty five to 30,000 buyers that come through, and they're anywhere from grocery stores to specialty food stores, catalogers, delis, uh, you know, in three days. It's, uh, it's a lot of people. It's intense. You give a lot of samples out. You give a, have a lot of conversations and make deals, hopefully. Make deals right there. So um, we were talking about this earlier. Um, there is kind of like a web or veins of a kind of, what would you call it, a food culture that exists in this country. 
And, uh, you know, there are a lot of different members. They're all over the country. I mean, can you talk about this kind of web of gastronomy and knowledge that exists here when it comes to food? Yeah, I if you're six times removed from everybody in this country, I think in the food world, you're one time removed from everybody. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me uh, those that have been in the food business for a long period of time. We all kind of know uh, know them, know each other, and if we don't know them, we know somebody that does. And uh, whenever we get together, either in small groups or large groups, it's uh, it's great to kind of push ideas to backward or forward to come up with new ideas because uh, uh, especially even even folks like yourself you're you're the ones that kind of decide what uh, direction the food world's headed in tomorrow please take my pork chop so <laughs> I can head it one more day but um, no the uh, very very it is very interesting but I mean there is this community and and as you launch the Suriano line which is you know, Arguably, and I think, you know, it, most people would agree, the best American-style ham being produced in the United States, meaning it's smoked, which the uh, Europeans do not do. Um, I mean, did you need to rely on these little beacons of culture throughout the country? I mean, I know there's Zingerman's in Ann Arbor. He's going to be doing an evolutionaries here in a bit. There is uh, Liberty Heights Fresh in Utah. There's Byright in San Francisco. And, I mean, are there these beacons and you would call them up or they would call you up and the tradition began? I mean, how do you keep in touch with all these people? Well, and, and, in, a, in a lot of respects, it's at the, at the fancy food shows. And, uh, of course, with the wonder of the Internet and email and so forth, we're all able to stay in touch. So if you have a new product that's coming out, uh, if you think there's some interest, you certainly want to try to get uh, get uh, the, the Williams-Sonomas and the Byrights of the world on the West Coast involved to get their opinions. And a lot of times in the development stages, we'll send samples to them to say, hey, we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. uh, and, again, because they are so knowledgeable as to what their customers are looking for, they've, they've always been – their feedback's been uh, uh, something that we always look forward to. Now, is a new product uh, a slow go? When it comes to an 87-year sure. tradition sure. business? Sure, um, It'd be a lot I'm, easier for a younger company to be like, yeah, we got a new product. Uh, we tried it out. We made two test batches. They were pretty good. Not at Edwards, though. Well, if you're making mustard, you it's uh, yeah, you test it. You put it in the marketplace and get immediate feedback. In our case, our tests run 18 months to two years. That's how long it takes to age and ferment the product correctly and and then at the end of the 18 months, you send the samples out to people that you respect their taste and um, get their feedback. And then we, if they say it's too salty, too moist, too smoky, not smoky enough, we make adjustments to, to who we think are um, experts in the field. And, and quite often, um, uh, the feedback that we get back, because we have our own mindset as to what it should taste like, um, but sometimes people in uh, California will have some input that for their marketplace that uh, we need to make a little different. Is there anyone besides you who you really trust taste-wise? <laughs> I mean, like your dad? I mean, I, I know the guy in the factory who you would work with might be like, this is delicious, but that's not enough to put the Edwards name on it yet. I mean, do you have an innermost circle of people that understand the history of what Edwards has produced? 
Or is it well, innermost circle. Uh, certainly, we have folks in the in, in our on our staff that we kind of start that. Are we on the right track? Once we think we're we've, we've got it pretty close, then I'd say there's 20 companies, 20 people uh, in, in the states that we send it to and uh, get their feedback. How long does it take a new product? I mean, give us an example of a new product, for instance, that you are proud of that's like new, fairly recent, besides the Soriano ham, which we've talked a lot about on this network. Uh, well, with some other products that we make that are a lot faster to come to market because the process is not so long would be a sausage item. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a country ham and sausage, uh, brown sugar sausage. Uh, it took us uh, about a year to get it fine-tuned. Mm-hmm. By the time we got it where we liked it and got the raw materials that we needed, uh, I had no idea there were so many different kinds of brown sugar. Mm-hmm. So, uh, How many SKUs do you have? How many items exist in your world, ballpark? Well, we, we make hams, bacon, and sausage. And out of the hams, bacon, and sausage, uh, the cooked, uncooked uh, country ham, spiral-sliced, honey-glazed hams, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250 SKUs. 250 SKUs from those three items. Correct. And we have a few beef items. We do a beef, smoked beef brisket and some other. That's not even including the 200 or so SKUs at your stores. Like right. Oh, no. The store. chains and yeah, pigs. No, and, no, the stores have over 5,000. Oh, my Lord. Oh. Now, uh, do you ever look at another business in the food industry and see how they operate and be like, wow, I wish Edwards didn't have 87 years of history. I could act like them. But with 87 (laughs) years of history, I mean, is there baggage that uh, makes it more difficult for you to run a profitable business? Like you're never going to eliminate skew number eight because granddad made that one. You know, to be honest with you, I've never thought of that before. It's a good question, but. I have never, ever, that thought has never crossed my mind. Is it always bottom line, or is there certain things no, that I, you just have to keep on doing because, like, your local community is like, that's our favorite ham? I would say if I were to pick another food business, I'd pick something that's not so uh, perishable or uh, the USDA is in our, you know, in our facility every day. We've got government uh, all over us all the time. And uh, there oh, are there are some foods that, that are less uh, regulated. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> uh, is the USDA and Department of Health and all that, are they doing a good job? Yes, in our plant they do, I think. Um, Chefs are always so scared to, to trash talk the USDA. Uh, they're like, no, they're doing very good. Gramercy <laughs> Tavern, we say they're doing very good. Sure. <laughs> Well, and of course, you know, restaurants have health inspectors, and we have USDA, FDA. Uh, USDA is in our plant every day. Uh, uh, restaurants typically is two, three times a year, unless they have a problem, they may show up more often. But, uh, you know, I, whenever I hear a restaurant or a chef talk about, oh, the health department came by today, I thought, well, hmm, have them ask you one day to build an office for them, and they have a place to come to see you every mm-hmm. day. It's a little bit different. Now, um, I want to ask one of my final questions. Uh, The Chesapeake Bay is one of America's greatest food zones, uh, probably top five or seven or something like that. Arguably, you know, it could even be the top. Um, And you uh, live right at the exact point of the first settlement of Jamestown. You overlook that. 
Um, I mean, does that is that just uh, is there unbelievable food culture there? And I mean, have you always grown up eating the local fish? I mean, speak about that little spot well, what, in the country. Yeah, sure. We're certainly very fortunate to, and of course, you don't realize this till you start to travel uh, west. Uh, the type of seafood that we have, you take it for granted because you've, you're able to get fresh oysters and shrimp and. Uh, certainly the blue crab from the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, we And when you go inland, you uh, quite often the seafood is not quite as fresh. and mm-hmm. uh, Or the, the, the shrimp are small. Or, uh, again, you just take it for granted because you've always had that. Um, in, in addition to that, the eastern shore, parts of Virginia that, uh, that uh, from peanuts to sweet potatoes, that's kind of what, uh, and of course, we like to think Virginia ham, one of the first exports back in the 1700s, is kind of key to Virginia history. But, uh, yeah, we've got a great history. Um, we've got uh, Patrick Evans Hilton that uh, has just written a cookbook about dishing up Virginia. With you on the cover, upper left-hand corner, pulling the yeah, ham. Yeah, and it still sells. Amazingly. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, uh, my final question, speaking of the local traditions of the Chesapeake and elsewhere, the peanut is the American nut, and you've been one of the biggest proponents of peanut-fed pigs, um, which is how I believe your father used to – they would just eat up the empty shells that would be lying around. So tell us about that project and how it's been going for you taste-wise. And sales-wise. Well, I, you know, the peanut-fed hog really kind of stopped in the 1950s. Uh, my, uh, as, as my ancestors have told me, that was one of the reasons why the Virginia ham was so famous because it wasn't that they actually fed them peanuts. They let the hogs roam the peanut fields after harvest. It was a way of not having to feed the hogs uh, corn and soybeans that they had harvested. And it was a way for them to get the peanuts up off the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they weren't so adept at harvesting. Today, they do such a great job of harvesting, there's hardly any peanuts left, so it doesn't make sense to have the hogs roam in the peanut fields for that. That's why you have to ship them. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually take the number twos. There's a lot of peanut operations that, that are making what they call the jumbo peanuts, cooking them and putting them into tins or bags, uh, shell bags, and they get number twos, and we provide the service of coming and getting them for a small fee. We actually pay them. They used to have to pay to have them hauled away. And uh, we, f- we feed the, finish the hogs on them, about 30% of their diet. And um, we think it's imparting a unique texture and flavor to the ham, especially ones that we're going to age over 18 months. We've, we've done some testing with some four-year-old hams that uh, the peanut-fed is definitely going to uh, improve the flavor profile. It gives it an oily texture oily, that you yeah. need to, to age a ham that long. Mm, very interesting. Well, um, we're honored that uh, you came into the studio. I know you're about to sit in for a long two-hour evolutionary piece, which is our highest honor. So congratulations, and thank you for all your support. And uh, we will hang out and uh, at the Fancy Food Show. And if anyone is going to the Fancy Food Show, definitely check out S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, stand number 4900. 4,900. Ooh, they gave you a good one. That's what happens 30 years in the business. And um, we also look forward to more people listening to our evolutionary series. The Sam one should probably premiere sometime this fall. So uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back right after these brief messages. 
You're listening to Sweet Talk by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Patrick Martins. You're listening to the main course this Sunday, June 20th. Is that what you said? June 20th? 30th. June 30th. Um, we are on the phone with Aaron Bullington. Aaron, are you with us? How are you doing, Patrick? Thanks for having me, man. We are combining all the old school technologies, radio, telephone, all here live on the main course. Uh, no one talks on the phone anymore, Aaron. You know what I'm saying? I feel you, man. I find myself texting you at random weird hours, a very strange requests oftentimes, and you always come through for me, and I can't thank you enough for that. I, I really appreciate getting good product from good people, and it, it keeps a lot of us working. So. You know, I, keep, I sleep with my, my telephone under my pillow. Uh, you know, it provides good structure for my neck. So every time you text me at weird hours, you wake me up. No, just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> I keep it on the side. So uh, you are the very uh, uh, sole owner of Burr Eatery. So uh, tell us when did it open and how was it conceived? I mean, what is Burr Eatery? Well, first of all, I am the public face of Burr Eatery. However, it is a joint affair. And okay. honestly, this company is kind of a love story. And it's uh, a partnership between my wife and I. My wife, Isla Rufo, is uh, from Sonora, Mexico. And she's a... Uh, Scottsdale CIA graduate, uh, really the driving force behind the kitchen and the concept of uh, the food production. Um, I myself am the man in the window, in the box, <laughs> I'm on the cart, on the ground, making the food, giving it to people, doing the interviews, uh, making the connections, etc. And I'm also a butcher, and I do plenty of kitchen work, trust me. Uh, the company itself was started in February of this year. I'd spent about six, year, uh, six months prior uh, looking into permitting and getting everything in line to, to pop the doors open, which we did this February. Well, very good. So how was it conceived originally? I mean, if people see you in the box, what are they going to see you doing? Well, basically what we do is we take these uh, pasture-raised meats, uh, GMO-free cheeses, uh, all these amazing vegetables that you don't often see uh, utilized here, especially in Northern California for some reason. And we combine them in traditional uh, Sonoran-style recipes. Sonora is the state that is just south of Arizona, and it's quite different from the rest of Mexico. Uh, the Sonoran Desert is uh, probably the main focus of that state. That and the Sea of Cortez, which is a nice kind of balance. It gives you a very Mediterranean climate um, and a ranching people. So the whole focus of this principle is the tortillas that we make. And the tortillas that we make are a very basic flatbread, very you know simple recipe that took forever for us to perfect. And uh, the focus of the best tortillas that we make is heritage lard or pastured pork lard. Of course, organic flour, some other stuff. But these tortillas are not like most flour tortillas that you get. The tortilla that you get here is stiff. It's pretty uh, dry. It's not a fun thing to eat, in my opinion. Well, so our tortillas are much thinner. They're like a translucent, almost like a, a mushu wrapper, if you will. Oh, very nice. I love mushu wrapper. Mushu pork, uh, duck, Peking duck. You wrap that delicious 
pancake. I love flour tortillas a lot. So now, do you sell these individually, and do people buy it as if it was bread, or do you just sell the whole taco package together? Well, we do burritos, and they're little burritos, so it, it kind of has been a, a labor of love bringing this concept in, even to a, a very you know wide, widely educated market of eaters like San Francisco is. Uh, you know, the burrito has just been made into something here that, that, you know, it wasn't before. You mean like a four-pound bag of rice? Basically that, and, and they're, they're loaded with taco fillings. Essentially, burritos were braises. What we serve are braises, so people are really surprised. They want to see carne asada. They're not used to seeing braised, shredded brisket. Mm-hmm. That and our burritos are smaller. I mean, they're not a grotesque thing to look at. You can do two or three, you know. However, after eating two or three of these little things, you really feel it. <laughs> I'm not making a health claim on these. They're delicious and tasty, but anybody that tries to sell you a burrito as healthy is just lying to you. No, that's interesting. So how many uh, tortillas? Do you have to make them every day, every morning? And are you doing mainly We're the farmer's market scene? All the time. Uh, we basically crank out these tortillas, my wife, myself, and we have one other helper. We're making these one by one by hand out of a, a commissary kitchen. And then we, we, at the moment, are just retailing them off the cart. So you come up, you buy your burritos, you eat hot, get a pack of tortillas for your fridge or freezer. Very, and uh, where are you located? Where is your base? Our base of operation at the moment, we're cooking out of Napa, but we do no selling up here right now. Uh, we sell primarily at Soma Street Food, Mission Dispatch, and right now we're getting in with Off the Grid. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, we're adding uh, the Flea and Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. So we have several locations. You can check our website if you're ever in the area, curious, hungry. Well, what is the uh, biggest difference with how you conceive the restaurant or conceive this food production business? Uh, and, you know, when you conceived it and reality now that you're six months in, have there been many changes or have you stuck true to your original game plan and that you predicted all the things that would come up as obstacles? God, no. That was, it was an amazing experience. Just putting all this together, I'll tell you, the night before we opened, I was up all night. I got zero sleep. I made 800 tortillas by hand myself. And by the end of the day, the next day, I was out of tortillas. And I had a cart full of dishes. I had no helper. Uh, my wife was exhausted, worked to death, you know, producing all that food for me. We produced it together side by side. It was, it was quite a trying time. And just the little things like, you know, you, you, you want to put out the napkin dispenser, and then you realize people are just going to stuff their pockets full of them, so you, you have to kind of tuck it back. Hmm. Uh, and then there's the food production. We've definitely improved a lot of our uh, techniques, you know, as we've gone along. Uh, our beef in particular, our, the pork recipe has always just been too high for. We do a pork and chili Colorado with your pork shoulder. It's amazing. <laughs> it makes me hungry to think about it. It's not like a spicy thing, but it's braised in this red sauce that, that's just delicious. Is there a variation on how the tortillas come out based off of temperature or humidity, or do you get the exact same thing every single time? There is quite a variation. Um, or there was at first, uh, we've kind of nailed that in that we use a, a, a certain type of press to make these. It's a hand press, but um, we're able to control temperature with it, so it's it's an easier ordeal, <laughs> let me tell you. So uh, what percentage of uh, the responsibility does the tortilla itself have in a burrito? 50%, 70%? 
honestly, Patrick, these are unlike any tortilla you've ever had. And I, I say that knowing that you have eaten a lot of food in your life. And I myself was in denial until I had, had to go to Mexico to try these the first time. And then I was bringing them back every trip, you know, in my suitcase, just loaded. <laughs> it got almost ridiculous. I, I had to make these. And everybody was telling me, you can't make them in the U.S. The water isn't right. Something isn't right. Huh. And that just drove me nuts. That <laughs> that was all somebody had to say to make me stay up all night and think about it for three years until I could make them. So uh, was there any place you worked at before, like the Fatted Calf or anywhere else where you learned a great deal about what it took? I mean, give us some of the headlining experience things you had done before starting Burritery. Goodness, maybe I should just kick the door open and tell you, I... I'll take you back a little ways and bring it forward really quick. So <laughs> at 18, I was playing drums in a band, and I decided that wasn't going to work. So I was a, uh, looking for a good job, and I got one in a co-op as a produce department manager. And it was the largest organic produce department in Florida at the time. It was a, a co-op as well, so it was a really neat experience. And after a few years there, I decided I was ready for California. And I came out here to San Francisco and got a job with Cape Organic uh, fruits and vegetables, and that was in the Ferry Plaza. Ferry Plaza was a newly renovated project then, a beautiful building, if nobody uh, listening has been. It's just a a fun place for anyone that enjoys eating, full of food shops. Um, I was managing their uh, food stand there for a while, and I met my wife, Isla, when she was working for Stonehouse Olive Oil. She then left Stonehouse to go work with Taylor and Deponia, um, they had just opened the fatty calf and were working <laughs> probably, you know, twice as hard as we are right now just to keep that going. And she was one of their first, you know, helpers in the kitchen there when they were a little startup like we are now. So they have really been a huge player in not only our lives, but, but our, our palates and the development of our techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to work for them for several years and, I'll tell you, I've never had a job like that. Uh, the people you're around, uh, Taylor, Bedecker, Tapunda Miller, Heather Bailey, Ryan Harris, those are just a few names uh, to keep it short. But these are amazing people and really passionate, driven folks who, who love meat and <laughs> not only uh, do something well, but want to teach people about it. And that's, that's kind of where we're at right now is trying to teach people why we don't have a chicken burrito on our menu, you know? Right. Well, very interesting. Yeah. Which? Uh, why is that, by the way? Because, in our opinion, it is too expensive to cost a chicken that we would put on our menu. But I mean, how much are your burritos anyway? They're cheap. I mean, if they're small and you only need two to three of them, how much do they each cost? Well, they're about four plus tax. So, so yeah. So you eat for fifteen bucks. Yeah, that's the new modern day meal. sandwich. I mean, a sandwich that costs three bucks, you should be worried about. You well, know but that I mean? reality is, Patrick, when 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 we got into this, uh, we didn't, you know, have a ton of events open to us. So what we're finding is that we said yes to everything, and some crowds love us, and then there's the crowd that you feel like you're literally in a shark tank. I mean, we operate out of an eight-foot trailer, and there are people walking by saying, you know, 
I don't give a damn about grass-fed meat. <laughs> you're going to lose that conversation. No, you no, you're not. Just do it. Have them back when we're there. We get them into a half Nelson. We get Catherine on. I, I love that idea, but you got to see the setup. I'm talking to people kind of through a ticket window, if you will. So <laughs> I've got a line behind them, and i got some jerk trying to tell me why he doesn't think you know, we should care how our animals are raised. Well, you uh, you can throw this book that I've written on them. You know, it's like a heavy book. It could, like, cut them maybe, you know, and you just throw it really hard at them, and then hopefully they'll read it and learn something. But speaking of, um, the book speaks a lot about to those issues. But uh, I also wanted to say regarding books that Taylor and Toponia have just uh, published or about to publish a charcuterie book, and that's really one of the great American charcuterie books. So just to echo what you were saying about them, I'm really proud. I saw the book and it's uh you know it's a powerful contribution to the whole state of gastronomy so uh aaron my last uh question to you uh, give us a little lens into the northern california food scene i mean it's very rich what are what niche of that food supply have you carved and what else is out there uh what other opportunities are there you know uh in that kind of world because it's very rich well, of course, there's tons to take advantage of, tons of, go- of, of good stuff going on, and, of course, the, the bounty of, of supply that we have here uh, of good stuff to work with. Our, our future is really to stabilize this project and, and to really uh, get off the ground here and then probably broaden the spectrum of, of the regional cuisine that we're working with because there is more to talk about when you're talking about the state of Sonora. However... These tortillas were something that nobody was doing here. And by nobody, I, I mean I was dying to find the person that was doing them because they're a lot of work. <laughs> and now I'm that person. So. What is the extra work? Just to explain that, what takes the extra time? Or is well, it just that they're handmade? Basically, when you're making a tortilla, what we have to do is, first of all, mix the masa. That happens first thing in the morning, and that's fairly easy. And then you just let it rest for a while. Then comes kind of the work. You have to portion it all out into individual bowls. Um, you have to roll them flat and then let them rest again for a while. Um, and then you're going to go along and, and press them one by one. <laughs> then you've got to cook them on a kamal. Then you let them cool. Then you package them. All of that takes about four hours. So Wow. And how many tortillas come out of that? Maybe 400. Mm-hmm, a good 400. day. Very, very interesting. So, uh, well, listen, we've got to have you back on. If you ever come to New York City, we hope to have you in studio, but we'll be sure to call again because uh, we could uh, do a whole interview just on the uh, Sonoran Desert and uh, all of that. So, um, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very, very good. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I would like to thank Aaron for being on. Uh, uh, it won't be his last time on for sure. Very, very interesting. That's Burr Eatery. I want to thank Sam Edwards for coming into studio. I'd like to thank uh, Joe and the team and Catherine and the team at Heritage Foods USA, which helps pay the bills, not just for Heritage Foods and a community of farmers, but also for Heritage Radio Network. So we'll be back. Stay tuned for what's the next show? What Doesn't Kill You with Katie Kiefer. I keep forgetting the new title. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.